Well, welcome to Sisterhood. We are in lesson nine of our curriculum, Clothed with Strength. And this week we are going to look at what it means to be clothed with strength for battle. Now, I personally don't like battles, and I would imagine that most of you feel the exact same way. Um, but when I say that I don't like battles, it's not that I just don't like battles. I hate conflict. I am a conflict avoider at all costs. Ladies, I don't even like negotiating with used car salesmen. That's how much I don't like conflict, right? If you have your Bibles with you, though, we're going to turn to Psalm 18, and we're going to spend the majority of our time in this psalm tonight. And Psalm 18 was written by David. For those of you who are not familiar with David, he was a well-known king in Israel for 40 years. And David was a man familiar with lots of battles. First of all, David was the youngest of eight brothers. And if any of you have siblings or more than one child in your home, you are very familiar with sibling rivalry, right? Can you imagine having your sibling rivalry recorded in scripture for eternity? That's what David got to experience. We actually see his sibling rivalry in 1 Samuel 17. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go there, but if you're not familiar with it, pull open your Bible later, later on and take a look and, and see even just from the very small things David experienced battles. But he faced much larger battles than those with just his brothers. We learned a few weeks ago that David is the man that faced the giant Goliath. David was also chased down by King Saul, who attempted to have David killed on multiple occasions. David led his people to war against the Philistines, Moabites, Aramaeans, Edomites, and Ammonites, just to name a few. And before we think that David was this incredible leader who was just constantly being pursued or sought after, David was also a man who was familiar with battles that he took, that he caused himself by his choice to sin. David had an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba, and when Bathsheba got pregnant, David took Bathsheba's husband and sent him to the front lines of battle to have him killed so that David could hide his indiscretion. So David was familiar with battles that he didn't have much say in, but he was also familiar with battles that he caused himself based on his choices. And David writes this particular psalm toward the end of his life. And what I appreciate about taking a minute to reflect on the battles that David faced is that I recognize when he wrote this psalm, he was a man with perspective. He wasn't speaking out of someone who just had a, a appeared to have things easy, but he was a man experienced with hardship. And if you've ever been in a season or gone through a trial and you've struggled to talk to someone about it because you don't think they can relate, sometimes when you open yourself up, the feedback that you get just doesn't feel genuine because they haven't walked a similar battle that you have. And so when I can step into reading this psalm and know that David himself was acquainted with the battle, I know that he speaks from experience and it opens up my heart even more to receive what he has to say. So what, let's start in verse 30. 
It says, God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord and who is a rock? Only our God. God, he clothes me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me and your humility exalts me. You make a spacious place beneath me for my steps and my ankles do not give way. All right, verse 30 says, God, his way is perfect. Honestly, that's not all that hard for me to reconcile. He's God. Of course he's perfect. That's a no-brainer. The part I struggle with is verse 32, where it says, God clothes me with strength and makes my way perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of a single journey in my life season I've walked through that I have done perfectly. That doesn't even seem like something that I can fathom in my own mind. But I don't think that God places unrealistic expectations on his children. So my perceived inability to walk perfectly has to do with my understanding of what David is actually saying here. You see, the dictionary definition of the word perfect is entirely without any flaws, defects, or shortcomings. So this is what I think of when I hear the word perfect. I want it just so, in a certain way, without any misalignment. But did you know that dictionary editors actually define words based on the way society uses them? So they look at things like social media, print pieces, current verbiage that we're using, and that's how they come up with dictionary definitions. And so over time, you will actually see that dictionary definitions change. So when this word perfect was written in the original Hebrew, it had a completely different meaning than our dictionary definition of perfect does today. The Hebrew word perfect means complete, whole, sound, healthful, having integrity, what is complete or entirely in accord with truth. So what the psalmist is actually saying to us is not that God clothes us with strength so that we are without flaws. Rather, he's saying to us that God clothes us with strength so that we can develop health and integrity in accordance with the truth that comes from God's word. And I think that all too often we strive for this dictionary definition of perfect, meaning without flaw. And we end up placing expectations on ourselves that God did not place on us. We can find ourselves exhausted trying to live up to unattainable standards. Do we not? We want to have a meticulously kept home. We want to always look good. We want well-behaved children. We want to drive the right car and be included on the right lists and get the certain number of likes on social media. 
The list could go on for days on whatever your definition of perfect is or whatever standard you've held yourself to that you consistently feel like you fall short of. When we don't meet these standards that we've set for ourselves, oftentimes shame and fear are close by reminding us that we are failures. Brene Brown says, when perfection is driving, shame is always riding shotgun, and fear is that annoying backseat driver. You see, if we can shift our thinking in regards to this definition of perfect and live according to the definition that we see in God's word with moral integrity, the rules change. And we're no longer bound to do things a certain way or act a certain way. We're only called to live out this journey with strong character. That's what God values. He closes with strength for battle for our character. Character seems to be more about the work of God in me. Perfection feels like its purpose is just to make me look good. Am I more concerned about what's going on in my heart and what God sees or how I look? Perfection has me asking the question, what will others think of me? Character asks, what does God think of me? Can I challenge you next time you're feeling driven to perfection and this worldly definition of perfection? Ask yourself, whose opinion am I worried about? And for some of you, the worst opinion is that of yourself because you've set a standard for yourselves that nobody else holds you to. Not even God. He's got a standard for each and every one of us, but that's about the condition of our hearts. Not about how many times we made it to the gym, or how good our house looks, or who our friends are. But what's going on in the innermost parts of our spirit. Some of us have a hard time saying no to people just because we want to be liked by them. So we end up saying yes to too many things, we get overworked and stressed out, and then we get crabby, and we have sour attitudes, and all of a sudden our good deeds are yielding really bad fruit because the good deeds that we've committed to or stepped into weren't things that God actually asked us to do to begin with. It is okay to establish healthy boundaries. You have permission to say no to people when it's to say yes to God and what he has for you. What God asks of one, he may not ask of another. God calls each of us to different things in different seasons in different times. So we are not to look to the sister on our right or our left or on social media to determine what it is we should be doing. We are to be looking into God's word. Jesus himself did not do the same, everything the same way consistently throughout scripture. Let's think about this. How did Jesus perform healings? In Mark 7, he healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter of a demon by speaking the word from a distance. 
In John 9, he healed a blind man by putting mud on his eyes. In John 11, he allowed Lazarus to be dead for four full days before healing him and bringing him back to life. In Matthew 9, the woman with the issue of blood just had to touch the hem of his robe. I believe that the reason why Jesus didn't do these miracles in the exact same way each and every time is because we would try to figure out what the formula for healing is. And we would make it about a checklist. If I do A, B, C, and D, then this will happen. And that's not what the walk of the Spirit of God is led like. When we use the Bible as a checklist, rather than allowing this to be a walk of faith guided by the Spirit of God, we end up looking a lot like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious leaders in that day. They knew the Bible better than probably anybody in their time. But they used a lot of rules and regulations to live by. And they tried to hold other people to those. They used it as a checklist instead of actually being in relationship with God. And God doesn't need you to check his list off. He's big enough to take care of that himself. He created us to be in relationship with him. The Bible does not have the answer for every single decision that we are going to make. And some of you just heard me say that and you think I committed blasphemy. The Bible has the guidelines for every decision that we are to make. For example, the Bible says that we should discipline our children. The Bible does not tell me how I should discipline, when I should discipline, for how many days I should discipline, or what that discipline looks like. I so wish it did. That would make my life as a mom way easier. But you know what? God didn't want us to operate that way. He wanted us to be in relationship with him. And so now my journey as a mom to know how to discipline my children has to actually be led by the Spirit of God, and it requires me to pray, and it requires me to listen. It requires me to communicate with him rather than just opening up to a verse and checking off a box. The Bible is our guide to learn how to walk with integrity. And it is absolutely filled with truth regarding what is right and wrong. But it's not meant to be the only way that we hear from God. I love his word. And a huge part of hearing from God is knowing what his word says so that you can identify truth from a lie. But it's not the only way that we should be in communication with him. He clothes us with strength for battle to scale new heights. Psalm 18, says, He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me securely on the heights. Okay, when I think of strength, a deer is not the animal that comes to mind. Can we be just honest for a second? I might think of a lion or a tiger or a bear. And how many schools do you actually see choose a deer as their mascot? <laughs> not... Not super often, right? I mean, deer are graceful and they're fast and they're beautiful, but it's not what I think of when I think of strength. 
And honestly, deer are often not that bright. <laughs> Many years ago, I was going down a country road and I saw a deer in front of me up on the right-hand side and I thought, ooh, better be careful. So I stopped and I didn't hit the deer, but the deer hit me. It ran right into the side of my car. <laughs> what in the world? So they're not the smartest animals either. <clears throat> so when I read this in scripture, and it says he makes my feet like the feet of a deer, I wonder, what are you actually saying to me, God? <laughs> but there's some really cool things about the feet of a deer that I think we can relate to. So deer hooves have black outer nails that are hard and strong, and they absorb the shock of every stride. It's this that also provides traction for them on soft and wet surfaces, and it's a weapon for them in battle. But the inner portion of the hoof is actually soft and much more tender, and it provides a cushion and traction for them on those harder surfaces. I love this imagery, the ability to be tough, resilient, and strong on the outside, yet maintaining a soft and pliable heart. And as a woman, I want to be described this way, strong and resilient, with a heart that is always tender to the things of God and to others. The idea that this tenderness covered in strength becomes a weapon is beautiful imagery. You see, when we operate in his strength with hearts that are soft and pliable and yielded to him, then we can walk with confidence that this is a weapon God can use. And I think so often we get it backwards. We're either all soft and we allow people to walk all over us and push us around, or we become all hard and we get hearts of stone because we don't want to be hurt because things have happened to us. And so we put up walls and defenses that prevent anybody from doing anything to us that would ever hurt us again. And God doesn't call us to either one. We're not to be pushovers. We're also not to be made of stone. It's both. Soft hearts yielded to him with a strength that only he can provide. Deer seldom fall. Have you ever looked at where deer run? I mean, they are in all sorts of crazy terrain. He equips them to run their race with agility and strength so that they don't fall. And when we are led by the Spirit of God, he gives us the exact same strength. When we're on shaky ground, and we're operating in the strength that he gives, he will keep our feet from slipping. He makes our feet like those of a deer so that we can securely navigate this rocky terrain of life to scale new heights. I'm not a big fan of heights. I never have been. So when I recognize that he's calling me to scale new heights, I'm like, we got some talking to, to do, Jesus. This isn't what I signed up for. But a little over a year ago, 
a friend of mine talked me into climbing the Manitou Incline in Colorado Springs. I requested we go shopping instead, but that didn't work out so well. <laughs> okay, so if you're not familiar with what the Manitou Incline is, we have a picture for you. So this is the climb, that nice little white spot. It's an old railway system that was initially constructed to provide access to water tanks at the top of the mountain. Girls, it was not meant to be climbed. <laughs> but the railway closed in 1990, and it became a popular hiking trail for those wanting an incredibly intense workout. It's about a mile in length, which doesn't sound so bad until you realize it's straight up. It's a 2,000-foot climb in elevation, and it's 2,744 steps. This is more stairs than the Empire State Building. So we have a picture of the steps for you because I don't want you to get a picture of like the nice stairs in your home. These are the types of steps that you will actually see when you do the incline. Do you understand why I preferred shopping? <clears throat> but we did the incline, we made it to the top, and there are some things to take into consideration before embarking on the incline. And there are many parallels as to how I think God calls us to respond when we're facing a battle. And the first thing that's important is to recognize that endurance is needed. Oftentimes, the first time someone climbs the incline, they start off really fast. Because the beginning of the climb, the steps are a lot easier, and it's a much lower elevation. And so they're like, I'm just going to tackle this thing. We're just going to get going. And they use up a ton of their energy right up front. But it's a marathon, not a sprint. And the problem with using up all your energy right up front is that you get tired a lot faster. Now, for me, when trials come, I want to blaze my way right through them. I want to get over them as quickly as possible. I want to know what shorts I can take to get to the destination as fast as I can. However, the length of the trial is oftentimes not up to me. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Okay, if we refer back to a little bit earlier in this lesson, we said that God clothes us with strength for battle so that we develop character and integrity. The journey to developing character is not a destination. It is a consistent journey where we're constantly being refined and developed in this area. Have you ever experienced that? You think, oh, this one area of my life, I just need to get it under control. And you finally do. You finally, you and God overcome it, and then he reveals another area. And you're like, really? We just worked on that one. <laughs> this word endurance means steadfastness, constancy, the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. The one who is steadfast and consistent in the trials will develop this godly character. 
And I think that one of the biggest things that keeps us from enduring through various trials is unrealistic expectations. We have an expectation that the trial, the hardship, or the season that we're in is going to be a certain level of difficulty or that it's only going to last a certain amount of time. And how many of you try to figure God out? I mean, we think we know how he's going to bring about our miracle. We think we have it figured out how he's going to solve our problem. We try to bring God down to our level of thinking. It doesn't usually work that way. When we look at the life of David, he had an opportunity to take a shortcut in his battle against Saul. You see, David had been anointed to be king at a young age, but he didn't actually get to step in to be king for 15 years. Can we talk about endurance? That was a trial. And it was during this time that the current king, King Saul, recognized the anointing on David's life and was jealous of him. And because of this, Saul decided to take, to try and take David's life. Not once, not twice, multiple times. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel 24 and see an opportunity David has to get Saul off his back. Starting at verse 2, it says, So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. Can we just thank the the Lord for his detail in scripture? (laughs) I'm pretty sure a man wrote this book. (laughs) David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, so they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men And he did not let them rise up against Saul. David had every opportunity to end his journey quickly. And he had friends surrounding him, telling him that the decision that he could have made in that moment to kill Saul would have been completely justifiable. I mean, Saul had tried to take David's life on so many other occasions. Ladies, character is about what voice you're going to listen to. Are you going to listen to God's voice and what he is asking of you and what he has called you to? Or are you going to listen to the voices of those around you? And that's not just the voices in this world. Sometimes it's even the voices in church. Because everybody has an opinion But the voice that we are to be obedient to first and foremost is what God calls us to. And David knew that God had called him to live with such character and integrity that he couldn't even cut off the hem of Saul's robe without feeling bad or guilty. Not even the hem of his robe. 
when so many others told him he was justified in doing so. On the incline, there's a spot about halfway up the mountain that's considered the cutoff point. And if you get halfway up the mountain and you decide that it's too hard, you can get off at the cutoff point and mosey your way down. And this feels good in the moment. It really does, because you're tired and the worst part of the climb is still ahead of you. But there's a view at the top that God has for you. And if you take the cutoff point, you're going to miss all that God wants to show you. Because there's a perspective shift when you get on the other side of the battle. When you're headed up the mountain, your perspective is very different than when you're looking at it from a distance. When you're looking at it from a distance, you can see the entire climb with just one look. But when you're in the middle of the climb, you can only see so many steps ahead of you. And it feels like all you see is just a wall of work. It's exhausting, and it's not super motivating. And I think our battles often look like that. When we're in the middle of it, all we see in front of us is the hard stuff, the work that's before us. And we need a a shift in our perspective. There's a spot when you're headed up the mountain that looks like the top. And they call it the false summit. Because all the while that you're headed to this spot, you think when you get there, you're going to be done. And you're not. It's a trick. When you get to that spot, you actually still have 300 more steps to go. The length of the climb doesn't change. But the expectation of when I'm done with it does. Because if I think that that false summit is the end of my trial, when I get there, I'm seriously disappointed to realize that I have 300 more steps. And sometimes in our personal battles, when we get to that spot, we want to get mad at God. We think that he duped us. We think that we've missed it or that he missed it. Instead of realizing that we tried to put God into our box, we thought we had him figured out, we determined what the end should look like, and he said, we're not done. So if we go back to the story of David and Saul, after David let Saul go unharmed, we see Saul's response to David. Verse 16, when David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me when the Lord handed me over to you. You didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Scripture doesn't tell us how David felt at this point in time. But I can tell you that if I was in David's position, I would be breathing a big sigh of relief because the man who has been trying to kill me just thanked me for not killing him and announced that I was anointed to be king. So I'm thinking, good deal. Saul's off my back. And I'm also thinking, thanks God. I did the right thing and you rewarded me. And yet that's not what happens in Scripture. 
Saul doesn't get off David's back right away, and he actually continues to pursue him for another year before someone else takes Saul's life. In our own journeys, the temptation can be to try to figure out how our circumstances are going to end. And we think we've figured out how God's going to come through, and when he doesn't respond the way we expected him to, we can get really frustrated. The reality is that God's plans for us will exceed our expectations. And when we try to bring God to our finite perspective, down to our finite perspective, rather than elevating our faith to trust him and his timeline completely. Because making it to the top of that mountain allows us to see the world from a completely different perspective. And things that seem so big at the bottom seem like nothing at the top. Isn't it true that perspective changes things? When we've done the hard work, when we've made it to the other side of the battle, we see things differently than we did before. And we get to experience a new level of strength that only he gives. But if we take the shortcuts, we're going to miss out on seeing all that God can, will, and wants to do in and through us. The good news is that the battle you're facing is not going to go on forever. Verse 36 says, You make a spacious place beneath me for my steps, and my ankles do not give way. And we have a picture at the top of the incline. It's a little bit better than the picture of the incline, is it not? Everything looks different with perspective. When we've yielded to him, when we've allowed our character to be refined, everything changes. The battles we face and fight are going to look different for each and every one of us, but the principles that we fight these battles with are the same. We're called to fight them with character and integrity so that we can scale to new heights equipped with his strength. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for your word and the promises of truth that you have for us. I pray, Lord, for every woman listening to this teaching, Father, that, Lord, we would be women yielded to you, women of character and integrity, so that we can scale to new heights and so that you can be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.